I'm Stuart Sheldon. My name's Ron Rothberg. 30 years ago, I was on Wall Street. I was the youngest vice president at my fancy company, but that's not what I wanted to do. After spending nearly 25 years in media, I knew things were changing, both in the industry and inside me. Swan Dive shares the powerful stories of those who had the clarity and backbone to make a major life pivot to their vision. I took a Swan Dive. I have been an artist ever since, and it's the best choice I ever made. Getting closer to who you really are. That's Swan Dive. The concept of the swan dive is rooted in the age-old pastime of storytelling. What's your story? Is your story true? Or is it what you believe is true? And so you have to ask yourself, the question is, the story am I living, does it open me to possibilities or does it shut down possibilities and keeps me restricted and constrained and un- unhappy? And so that, that, that's, I, I think that's the, the litmus test that always has to be asked. Richard Stone is a nationally recognized speaker on the power of storytelling. Richard shares his story right now in the latest chapter of Swan Dive. From the Peacock and Park Studios in Jacksonville, Florida, and in Costa Rica from the Fancy Nasty Studios, welcome to another edition of Swan Dive. My name is Ron Rothberg, and in Costa Rica, please welcome to the microphones, Stuart Sheldon. Hello, Hello, Stu. Hello, buddy. How are you today? I'm just, the year is winding out in a magnificent way, and I really appreciate everything that's happened this year. Right on, man. Well, me too. I've been thinking about what we're doing here with our art project, Swan Dive, and it's really about the stories that we tell our own stories and how to find the truest story that defines our best life. I found a great quote uh, by a fellow named Jonathan Gottschall in a book called The Storytelling Animal. And he said, we are, as a species, addicted to story. Hmm. Even when the body goes to sleep, the mind stays up all night telling itself stories. And, you know, today we hear so much talk around the idea of story, the positivity and negativity of controlling the narrative. And of course, this podcast is about taking control of your story to manifest your dream, or perhaps more importantly, manifesting your dream to make it your story. Our guest today is Rick Stone, one of the world's foremost experts on the power of storytelling. Rick tells stories for a living. He began in advertising and has dedicated the past 30 years to bringing back this ancient art form in service of teaching, learning, and connecting people worldwide. As the CEO of StoryWork International, Rick uses storytelling-based training programs for team building and leadership development, helping professionals add deeper purpose and meaning to their work and to their life. At companies like Disney, Walter Reed Army Medical Center, Hewlett Packard, Kraft Foods, and many, many more. His latest book, Story Intelligence, co-authored with Scott Livingood, helps each of us become a master of our story and amplify and unleash every aspect of our IQ and EQ. Welcome to Swan Dive, Rick. Uh, Pleasure to be with you. Thanks for having me on. I've had the pleasure of hearing you tell stories at my son's school, and you are a splendid raconteur. No surprise there. Most of us spend our lives telling our own story to others to make ourselves look good and to make others like us. But you embody the idea of using story to 
actually elevate ourselves and to serve others and connect at a deep, genuine level. Tell us more about how we do that in Mm. our daily lives. Well, I think that um, there are a number of things we need to peel away from that question (laughs) in terms of thinking about uh, the role of story in our lives and in our identity and how we present ourselves in the world and how we think about ourselves. And when we're born, we're born into a story that's already left the station in a sense. Our parents have a life going on and there's a family we're born into and we're born into a a family of stories. Uh, and, and I would say mythology about the family. It, it shows up in some really interesting ways. I've got a colleague, Paul Costello, in Washington, D.C. And he was working with young people initially from Belfast, Protestants and Catholics in their 20, early 20s. And they were brought to Washington, D.C. for this program. And he said that there was an event in 1921. They called it Bloody Sunday. And, uh, you know, the details are debatable about what happened. I think the IRA attacked some British soldiers and then the Protestants reacted. But by the end of the day, uh, a thousand homes have been burned. A hundred people had died. uh, You know, hundreds have been injured. And he said that story is still told in the pubs today like it happened yesterday. Hmm. If you go to the Catholic pub with your parents you're going to hear a story about those awful Protestants. And if you go to the Protestant pub, you're going to hear a story about those awful Catholics and and how they're less than human beings and, and on and on and on. And he said, when these people came over, these young people came over to Washington, D.C., he said they were in some kind of a program and they brought in a facilitator to kind of get them talking, you know, and, and the next thing you know, they're debating about what happened in 1921. And and with accusations and you people and, you know, and things were going south very quickly. And this woman called up Paul and said, I think I need, we need to do something very different here. And uh, so one of the things that Paul said to them was, uh, is that I'm not interested in that story. You know, I, I'm interested in your story, your personal story. And we often don't make a distinction between our personal story and this sort of broader story that we may have absorbed about uh, the culture and about other people who are different from us. Um, and, and once he shifted that conversation, he says, I'm not only interested in your personal story and your journey getting here, which allows people to suddenly go, okay, what has been my journey? Hmm. Uh, and sort of to be able to examine it with clearer eyes. Uh, but he became more interested, he said, in the story you want to create together about the future. And so you see so often with so much conflict with people today is that we're all still adjudicating something that happened 100 years ago or maybe 500 years ago or 2,000 years ago, you know. And, and, we're, and we've, we've raised children. We've pickled the ch- our children in, the, in that story. And so they're, they're continuing the you know, the grudge or whatever it is that's been carried on and passed on. I think it's fascinating. How how long does it take to be self-aware that this story has been given to you? And then what's the process in regaining or taking back that narrative? Well, I I think it's a lifelong process, frankly, but um, I, I, I think that sometimes something cracks us open. Something 
hits us in the face. Something happens that uh, it could be a, a divorce or a, a, some kind of relationship breaks up, or or it's maybe meeting somebody who um, suddenly asks us a question. Is that yeah. true? Is that really true that that's the way things are? And 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 something about that question penetrates us in a way that we go, I don't know. I'm not sure. Perhaps yeah. it's not true. Ron, the answer to your question is 58 years. That's how long it takes. Because <laughs> it was 58 years this summer when I finally came to realize that my story about myself was wrong. You know, that I was unlovable, that my parents' divorce was because I, you know, I, I wasn't worthy of their love, and this and that and the other. And we're not going to tell my story here today, but it was a massive seminal shift in my understanding of my own life, my own truth, my own strengths and weaknesses. Um, and I think, Rick, you're spot on when you say, like, there's a moment where something hits you or some, something yeah. is revealed or something is asked, which makes you reframe who you believe yourself to be. Because at the end of the day, it's about what we actually believe so we can schlep stuff along for a long time, you know, and people can be in their seventies and eighties and they have not done the work. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And this gets into some deeper questions about, you know, who are we and, and, and are we our story or are we, are we something that even transcends that? Yeah. And, and I think that's the, the latter is the case. Uh, but that the story that we tell ourselves about ourselves um, has consequences and uh, and it, it has implications in our other relationships and 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 the the possibilities we see or the limitations we see in life. And so I, I just I know people who live within a very, very tight sort of little box mm-hmm. because they have a story that it's not safe out there, and taking a risk is a difficult thing. And gosh, if you do that, something terrible will happen. And and I'm sure if we were to peel that back, we could find the origin of that or the conditions under which that came. Maybe they came into this world with that. I don't know. Um, and so you have to ask yourself the question is, the story am I living, does it open me to possibilities or does it shut down possibilities and keeps me restricted and constrained and un- unhappy? Yeah. And so that that that's I, th- I think that's the the litmus test that always has to be asked. And that is really the litmus test for our listeners in terms of you know the swan dive and are you living that? Are you on the trajectory that you believe to be? You know, I started this conversation. I'm mea culpa in the deep end of the pool here and went kind of right into it. But one of the things that you showed me um, is the delightfulness of the storytelling milieu, the fun of it, the old fashioned sitting around a campfire uh, and just being riveted by someone who really spins a good yard, uh, a good yarn. And what I also learned from you is there's an entire ecosystem dedicated to this romantic, old-fashioned storytelling pastime. You even discovered your love of this, of your career, of your life's work in one of these environments. Tell us more about that experience. You know, there's there's a wonderful anthropologist named Angeli Zarian who's no longer with us, but um, she said if you weren't feeling well, if you were in a kind of indigenous culture and you went to the shaman, uh, the shaman would ask you one of four questions. 
When did you stop singing? When did you stop dancing? When did you stop taking time to be quiet? You could think of that in prayer or meditation or whatever. And when did you stop taking time to be delighted by hearing and telling stories? Hmm. So um, I think that story, uh, story sharing is at the heart of the human experience. It's the heart of what it means to be in relationship with others. And I think it's, it's adult play. <laughs> it's how yes. adults, I think, traditionally had play time was to sit around and tell stories and, and the fish would get bigger every time, you know, you told it and, and, uh, you know, <laughs> or, you know, or, you know, or you reached down from the horse and picked up the hat as you were riding, you know, at 70 years old and whatever the story was. So, um, and so years ago I was running an ad agency and I was, uh, I had made a decision to sell the agency and I had no clue what I was going to be doing, but I knew it was not that anymore. And it, I thought I'm going to be a dead man in another two or three years if I keep doing this. And I met some people on an airplane coming back from a hiking trip and they were hikers. So, you know, we're sharing various trips that we've, uh, you know, trails we've traversed. And uh, at some point they said, have you ever been to the National Storytelling Festival? And I kind of said, I don't know, what is that? And it's uh, it's this big event in Jonesboro, Tennessee. It's a little historic town up in the kind of the northeast corner of Tennessee. You know, Tennessee kind of stretches up there. It's just over the, on the other side of the mountains from Asheville, North Carolina. And about 10,000 people show up to hear people tell stories. So uh, for me, I, I went and I had an epiphany sitting there in the audience that this is what I'm supposed to be mm. doing. I didn't know what that meant. I remember, I remember announcing coming, sitting down with, for dinner with my father. My father lived in 98. He was, uh, and telling him I was going to sell my ad agency and I was going to pursue a career in storytelling. And he thought I'd maybe fallen off a bike and hit my head or something. And was suffering from a concussion perhaps or something. Really? That's. Uh, I, yeah. I, w- I wonder if you hadn't made that conscious decision to sell the agency, would even the thought of storytelling been interesting or remotely interesting? I find that when I talk to my contemporaries, their head is filled with what's on their plate right now, and the plate of possibilities is so far from them. Yeah. Um, if I had stayed in the agency, I'd probably, I don't know, I was already, there was something in me that was, you know, I think our soul speaks to us sometimes and sort of keeps on pushing the limits. And and I had been painting for many years and I was finding time in the evenings to paint still through all this. And I, it it would have come out in some other way, perhaps. Um, But uh, sometimes we have to, and I I was just in a unique situation. I, I didn't have children at that point. Hmm. Um, I, and it turns out right at the nexus of all that, I met my wife, <laughs> wife of now will be, we're going on 29 years. You know, sometimes we have to close a door. There's that old proverbial saying, you know, when one door closes, another opens. What people often forget about that saying is that the, the follow-up on that is that sometimes we look so longingly at the door that closed, we don't see the doors that are opening. So we're, we're we become attached to our misery sometimes we're you know it's but it's our misery you know Mm. (laughs) well it's it's not just that it's it's there's comfort in misery for some people in that regard right because it's 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 the the known it is known it's familiar and even though it's uncomfortable at least i know it is and 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 the unknown is even more uncomfortable so i i had 
maybe a you know maybe I have a gene that says it's okay to go ahead and step out into discomfort um, and to try something that I don't know I have no clue. I mean, the joke with my wife always, she laughs. She goes, I said, I said, I, I think about doing this. And she, she says, what do you know about that? I said, nothing. She <laughs> says, well, what's new? You know, so, you know, I'll, I'll learn what I need to learn to be able to be successful with it. And um, so there's something in me that's willing to take a leap. And, and I've sort of practiced that enough that I've realized that I haven't died. Yeah. So, yeah there have been a few times where uh, the leap was painful. <laughs> on the, in the in the landing uh but uh and you know as we get older you know taking risks becomes an interesting question you know especially financial risks you know um so thinking well if this fails you know am i going to be able to start a whole new thing all over again and, and i think that that's why that's such an interesting path to storytell because you can continue on your pragmatic path but you can allow yourself to at least tell a story or listen to stories or be around other people's stories perhaps those are the keys that you need to unlock yourself yeah you know it's interesting I, i've been teaching i just had the last class yesterday at emory's lifelong learning institute i've been teaching a course on the seven powers of story and the last power of story is to envision possibilities and I recently finished teaching a, a, a real class, a real class, but you know, with with young people who are graduate students at High Point University in the School of Communications, similar class. And I said, you know, I, I came in yesterday, and I said, you know, talking about the future with twenty-two year olds is different than talking to us seventy-year-olds about mm -hmm. the future. Mm -hmm. you know, our, our horizon isn't, you know, we don't have this far horizon. You know, we're looking around and seeing like, oh, so-and-so just died. He's my age. And, right. you know, so so life, suddenly our mortality becomes a little more present for us. But we did an exercise. I said, what is it you guys have, you know, that you're thinking about your future? That What, what possibilities have you been entertaining? And, and, and some of those people are still entertaining big possibilities. As they should. Yeah. They so, should. and uh, so... Uh, I don't, regardless of what age you are or what your circumstances are, what your economic conditions are of your pocketbook, uh, don't be so ready to discount or to have to embrace a story. Oh, that's not possible. Yeah. I have a friend who just turned 50 a couple of years ago and he taught me a term yesterday or he used a term I'd never heard. The term was beginner mind. Yeah. And he's just started to learn to play piano. He's just uh, started to, to, to become a good surfer. Uh, he's working hard on his Spanish. And uh, I mean, he's really talking about a renaissance. And this idea of beginner mind is precisely what you're describing. And the, the willingness to just sort of not know anything, but be interested and take the time and the energy to yeah. pursue that. And you strike me as someone who has a very lively beginner mind. Yeah, I think if you know, that comes out of the Zen tradition, and uh, there's a wonderful Zen story about uh, um, a warrior comes to a Zen monk who's very renowned for his his equanimity, and uh, and he's uh, you know and and he's about to he says teach me something and 
and said, why, why would I teach anything to someone like you? You know, was, you know, and he, and he just demeans this guy and the guy pulls out his sword and is about to hit him. And he said, he said, now there is something to work with, you know, because, you know, cause we have a reactivity about the world. And, um, and so how, how do we stop step out of our reactions that are automatic and come to the moment, the beginner mind, the, the pre, become present to what's happening right now and get out of our head. There's another variation of that story is a, a very erudite uh, scholar comes to the, the, uh, the monk and he wants to learn everything about becoming present and, and becoming aware. And the monk starts pouring tea and, 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 and he doesn't stop pouring and the water is, the tea is over, overflowing the cup and it's flowing everywhere. And, and, and the guy says, what are you doing? You're making a mess here. He says, says that cup is like your mind. Hmm. It, it's, it's so filled with the ideas that there's no room for anything else to enter. And so sometimes we have to clear stuff out. We have to clear things away and, uh, all of the habits and the things we've been doing for the last 45 years or whatever, you know, and say, well, what's possible here? You know, I always wanted to learn how to play the guitar yeah. or flute or, um, I took, I took up saxophone recently, although I I've had to put it aside. I kind of got to the point where I thought, Oh gosh, this is really hard. <laughs> it's not really hard. It's, and I wasn't having time to practice and really give it the, but you know, I said, well, I'd like to try playing it. And so I, 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 the good thing out I got out of it was one, uh, I learned how to read music pretty well, hmm. and two, I, I developed my ear and it improved my singing. Nice. And so I, you know, I got I got great benefit out of spending time playing the saxophone. So, getting you know. back to the concept of that beginner mind, it also means that you haven't had failure yet. If you go back to the beginning and say, "Wait, I, I haven't had the negative." or for that matter, the narrative that was applied to me. Oh, you can't sing. You can't play the sax. Wait, I'm just starting. I'm the beginner. Uh, I think it's an interesting um, yeah. concept to adopt with anything. Yeah. Well, but the, the idea of failure is also a story. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, failure, failure, failure evolved out of, from our educators. Uh, kids don't know failure. You, you've seen it with your own young kids, you know? They, they, you know, young kids, they get up, they fall, they get up themselves up. They don't go, oh, my God, I just failed in walking. My life is ruined, you know, or whatever. You know, they just got back up and next thing you know, they're running, you know, or yeah. whatever it is. And so then you go to kids go to school and now we're giving them a grade. And, and, you know, if you didn't if you don't do the way we want you to do it and you know, perform this way. Uh, you're just a C kid, or maybe you're an F, you know, you're a failure. And now you're, so we create a whole stigma around that. And um, I, I've got a, an educational consultant that I've gotten to know who's done a lot of work with a thing called process education. And I met him at a conference and we were, uh, I had a, a booth and he had a booth next to me. And so we started talking and I was giving a big talk at this conference. It was me about 150 people in the room. It was like a workshop. And he said, you want me to come and give you an assessment? Hmm. And I said, sure. What's an assessment? <laughs> you know, is it going to hurt? <laughs> you know, and, and so he, he's taught me the distinction between an evaluation and an assessment. And so what we're mostly doing is we're evaluating our performance. Boy, I, I sucked at that, you know, and, and, or, or it wasn't good enough and all the kinds of 
judgments that we heap on ourselves or that are get heaped on us by others. Okay. An assessment is looking at what you did really well and areas you can improve the next time around that you do it again. Mm. And suddenly it doesn't, it no longer has this charge with it. It's like, Oh, look, you did these four things really well. And, and these three things, I thought you, if you could, you could maybe polish those and work in them again, see if you can work those into your next, your next performance that you're doing. And so an assessment suddenly becomes something that you, you relish. Mm. You, you yeah. want to hear an assessment, whereas mostly we fear getting evaluated. Like God, yeah. But, but that evaluation part of life is this, is the reality. You're getting evaluated for a job. You're getting evaluated to make sure you keep your scholarship. You're getting evaluated for the raise between you and somebody else. How do you keep that from messing with your identity? Well, it's it's a tough one because once you you've already bought the you've drunk the Kool Aid that your identity is dependent on that evaluation. Mm. Okay. You know, I want to pop in here about this idea of failure vis-a-vis storytelling. Any good story from the audience's point of view mandates failure, mandates tension, mandates that the hero on the hero's journey, you know, hit the rocks and his ship sinks, and then he has to kind of overcome. And so failure in our lives and to my own personal experience, all of our experiences, I imagine, is integral to our growth, our wisdom and our elevation and failure or, you know, the discussing your own failure has another name. It's vulnerability and it's honesty. And uh, and that's what really builds connection. That's what makes you endeared to another. I want to, first of all, acknowledge and say it out loud, since this podcast is Swan Dive, that you had the gift of trusting your kishkas, trusting your your gut on leaving your career, uh, even though you didn't know where you were going next. And that I'm sure your father, uh, like some people in my life, thought that what a failure, what a failed idea that is to leave a perfectly noble and successful business to go sort of, I don't know where, but that is exactly what this Swan Dive podcast is about and yeah. you embody it. And it takes a lot of, a lot of courage and it takes a lot of self-respect to do that. And you've probably heard this quite a bit over the last 30 years, but I just want to say it out loud because you know, you're, it's a heroic, it's a heroic choice. And good on you, man. Well, yeah, you know, the hero's journey. I don't know if you've had anybody on your podcast to talk about the hero's journey as an archetype. So th- this is a, a Joseph Campbell has wrote a lot about this probably you know, sure. 40, 50 years ago. And if you begin to see your life as a journey and that it recasts everything so that uh, is that you're going you're gonna to expect, as you said, is that life has ups and downs, uh, and every story has turning points and conflict, and things get resolved. Nothing ever stays the same. Things sort of find a way, you know. You know, to, you know, water finds its low point <laughs> eventually. It drains away, and uh, and so if you can embrace the notion that life is this journey, and when bad things happen, that you can even bless the bad things. And actually embrace them, and and ask and, and be curious. Well, I wonder where this is going to lead. 
Yeah. And so what we do is we often catastrophize when something looks like a quote unquote failure uh, or when something happens that we go, oh, I didn't get the job or I didn't get the raise. Uh, and we turn, we, we, we immediately turn that into a story that diminishes us and diminishes our possibilities. You know, and- to that exact point, I found a quote that I thought was amazing. And you may have heard this. It's from an author named Francesca Leah Block. And she said, quote, think about the word destroy. Do you know what it is? De-story. Destroy. Mm. Destory, you see, and restore. That's restore. Story. Do you know that only two things have been proven to help survivors of the Holocaust? Massage is one. Telling their story is another. Being touched and touching. Telling your story is touching. It sets you free. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Beautiful. And this idea of Instead of catastrophizing, simply telling the truth of your experience and allowing it to be shared and liberated uh, is an example of the power of story. Unlike, you know, I, I just found that. What are your thoughts on that? Well, the two things. One, I coined a term a few years ago. I called it destorification, mm-hmm. which is akin to deforestation. And so when we've... Uh, when we've taken away all the places to share stories in our lives, and there's no, uh, something gets lost profoundly. So we have to restorify our lives and restore. So it's very, I, I love that uh, quote by her. The, the other piece with this is, is that there's this fabulous story that, that I've been telling for years called the, uh, the Remarkable Horse. Let's see if I can tell it really briefly for your audience. Uh, so one day, uh, there's an old man and his son. It's a Chinese tale. They live in a small hut. And one day, a remarkable horse comes riding into the paddock. And they're, uh, this is a remarkable thing, you know. And they go, he tells the son, quickly close the gate. And and the neighbor comes by. When word comes out, it goes around the village that this has happened. And comes by to tell the old man, you know, such good luck, such good fortune. But the old man says, maybe yes, maybe no. Only time will tell. And a few days later, the horse jumps over the, the gate and is gone. And his friend comes by to commiserate, oh, such bad luck, such bad fortune. And once again, the old man says, maybe yes, maybe no, only time will tell. And uh, a few days later, they hear the sound of thunder. It's, it's like deafening. And, and they see that remarkable horse come riding into the paddock, followed by 20 other horses. And the sun goes and he closes the gate and his friend comes by. Ah, such good luck, such good fortune. You know, you'll be the wealthiest man in town with all these horses. But once again, the old man says, maybe yes, maybe no. And a few days later, the son is trying to break one of those horses to ride it. And he's thrown and he shatters his leg. And the healer comes and he's able to put a splint on it, but they didn't have modern medicine. And he said, you'll probably walk again, but you'll always walk with a limp. And and the old man comes by and says, ah, oh, such bad luck, such bad fortune. Your son's injured. How are you going to manage everything here? And the old man says, maybe yes, maybe no. And then a few weeks later, the army comes in and conscripts every young man in that town, except, of course, the young man with the broken leg. And so you never, we never know if the story is a good thing or a bad thing because the story is never finished. Yeah. Yes. And what I love about that story is that it, it allows us to see that 
things happen, good things and bad things happen in our lives all the time. And that what we do, though, is we amend on the end a conclusion about mm-hmm. its meaning and implications in our lives. You know, you know, it's like uh, you have a car accident and you come home and you go, oh, hey, did I have a terrible accident? It was the oh, worst thing. What am I going to do about the car? Uh, you know, and it becomes a big catastrophe instead of like, well, this guy hit me in the fender and I got to get the car in and get it fixed. Yeah. That's all there is. Yeah, the end. Yeah. The end. You know, <laughs> is it a good or bad thing? I don't know if it's a bad thing because maybe maybe it'll turn into a good thing because I'll, I'll meet an old friend at the car dealer at the place yeah. that I haven't seen in years. He says, hey, Rick. I've got a great opportunity for you, but I wouldn't have been there unless the guy had hit me in the car, you know? So, um, and J.R. Tolkien also played with this idea. I think at the workshop you were at, he calls it a U catastrophe, EU letters, EU catastrophe and EU in the Greek is good. And so he constructed all of the Lord of the Rings with this device of things look like they're the end of the world is just about happening. And then they, something happens that turns it actually into a good thing. Yeah. And so when we, if we can embrace our life that way um, with curiosity as though we're not enmeshed in it. Uh, uh, I had a lovely storyteller who's no longer alive, Sid Lieberman. Uh, I had him come to Disney once and he was had him working with all the directors and producers at Disney. And he said, humor is seeing your life from the other side of the street. And if we can sort of have a little distance. Yeah. Detachment. A detachment. And so, and so, you know, when crap happens, you know, it, it, you know, it is to go, Oh, that, that, that was pretty bad. That felt pretty awful, but I wonder what's going to happen here. Yeah. Yeah. You, you know, you talked about this idea of destorification. Well, you coined the term and you described it moments ago as the sort of uh, the lost, the lost uh, opportunity to tell stories together. And I recall you talking about this ancient format, the Cayley. Yeah. I believe it's a Scottish tradition. Yeah. And I would love to see that come back and, and, and even bring it back in my own little village. But tell us about the Cayley because there's an opportunity for all of us to introduce into our own small circles the storytelling evening. Yeah. So uh, in, in in traditional Scottish communities going back centuries, there was always what they called the Cayley House in the community. It was a place where people would come and they would come to sing and dance and tell stories and recite poetry. And um, today it's more singing and dancing in the, in the contemporary times. Um, but... Uh, what I'm working on right now, you know, the problem is that nobody could spell Kaylee. It's spelled C-E-I-L-I-D-H, you know, mm. and, and I went out and got the, uh, the URL Kaylee.com or something. And I thought, well, you know, every day, every time I say, Hey, go to Kaylee.com and they go, how do you spell that? You know, and I have to explain it. So uh, we we're getting ready to launch an initiative. We're calling it the central fire. And you can go to the central fire.net, the central fire.net. Um, and we're going to start creating virtual events where people can come to share just to hear and listen to stories, tell and oh, wonderful. And so I'm actually, we're in the middle of planning. We're going to kick this off in January with a couple different pilots. And then we're going to start training people up to be, I'm calling them uh, fire keepers. Hmm. 
And so, uh, so you could become a firekeeper in your community and, you know, you can have a face to face and invite people over to your home for uh, you know, a central fire event, or if you want to call it a Kayla, you can call it whatever you want to call it. Right. Wow. I, don't, I don't care. Um, but the idea is, is to uh, re reinvigorate community through the sharing of stories. Yeah. And uh, it, it doesn't take a lot of technology and training to be good at it. You know, you have to create the space and create some safety and, I used to do this in Florida when I lived there many years ago. And, and inevitably I'd have people say, you know, I would really like to come, but you know, I'm not, I don't want to tell stories. I'm not a very good storyteller. I said, no, don't worry about it. Just come on and listen. And then invariably, I don't know what the topic would be, but it would, you know, veer into some weird topic like Turkish baths or something. And the next thing you know, this person said, well, you know, I didn't think I had a story, but I have a story about Turkish baths. And the next thing you know, they're telling a story when they were traveling in Europe and through Turkey or whatever. So, um, this is available to us. It doesn't require, you know, it's a very low, it doesn't require a lot of cost to do this, you know, and, and it just requires generous listening listeners who come, who are just to, to enjoy the tale. We talked about this earlier. There's some people that, you know, force their story upon you, you know, and sometimes there are people you, they're, they're just want, they're so eager to give you a story and others like it sounds like are well, now I have something. So how do you have it? What do you do when you have someone that is so over willing to share and you don't have that much interest in it? Well, uh, <laughs> is there a polite way to tell someone to shut the fuck up? Or is there- I don't know. <laughs> well, that's one of the things we're going to have to work with because you do know there will be a seminar on that. Some, some will come in and want to go, you know, they'll just, they, they have no awareness of others or time or the fact that they're boring everyone. <laughs> and that's why you have to have a good, a good fire keeper who can uh, throw some water on their fire and kind of put yeah. it out a little, and say, you know, I tell you, it's Stu, I think I'm aware that it's, it's almost nine o'clock and we haven't heard from anybody else yet. Can, <laughs> can you wrap it up in the next 30 seconds? You know, <laughs> You know, it's funny. It's funny that, 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 that I, I love that you've sort of crystallized the story and the storytelling act as, as a thing, you know, and made it a life's work. It, it's I find that just in and of itself fascinating. But in, in thinking about our conversation, I, I, I hearken back to my my last year of college and I worked at, for Lehman Brothers in New York. I was a cold caller where I would just get people on the phone and hand them off to this vice president who was this young guy in his late 20s studied poetry in some tiny liberal arts college and, and, and had no credentials to speak of, but was making gobs of money because when I would hand that phone call off to him, he could immediately engage the person in some storytelling fashion and weave a tale that this person could be excited about. And all of a sudden they wanted to send this guy millions of dollars and in fact did that. And it showed me the power of story. It wasn't about that he went to, he didn't go to Harvard. He didn't know, you know, it wasn't numbers based and fact based. He just engaged this audience in such a way that they just wanted to talk to him again and again and again. And in essence, if you can tell stories well, and as you certainly can, then you will always, always connect with people. You always have an enthusiastic person sitting in front of you. Uh, and of course, you need to be, as you said, a, a willing and enthusiastic listener. But this is an art form that you are are, are pursuing that uh, I think is like a, a life hack. I mean, well, tell good stories. Yeah. What do you think? 
Well, and but there's the, there's another thing that's more important than storytelling, and that's story listening. Mm. And uh, to be a really good listener of stories uh, will serve you more than if because you may you may go, eh, I'm not very good storyteller, but all of us can be good story listeners. Tell us how. Tell us tell us what it means and what we do to be a good story listener. Well, uh, first of all, is to is to put your story aside. Mm. Okay? So this is not about me. This is about yes. you. And, uh, and to be curious. And it's, it's, it's as though if I was meeting you for the first time and you said, you know, I'm living in Costa Rica. Costa Rica, tell me, what is it like to live in Costa Rica? How, and how did you come to that decision to make a move, which is a substantial move? Um, and by being curious, it allows you to uh, to maybe even discover something about yourself you don't even know if I ask good questions. Mm. Okay? So there's a woman named Nancy Klein who I did work with for years, and uh, all of her work has been about how to make it, how to help us think better. And she says that the quality of our thinking is directly commensurate with the quality of listening another person gives us. Hmm. So if we listen really well and not interject our values, our judgments, our conclusions on the other person, but to be interested in how they're seeing the dilemma, how they're seeing the problem, and how they're thinking about solving the problem, you will help people become more brilliant, but you'll also help them discover themselves, I think, in that. Mm. And uh, and so th- this is actually true. I, I don't know what was going on with your colleague at Lehman Brothers. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm sure he was a great storyteller, but I bet he listened pretty well also to their story. Yeah. Uh, he elicited their story and found out, you know, what are their concerns about investing or what are their concerns about their retirement or future and, and was able to speak into that. And if he hadn't taken time to listen and just launched into whatever story he had about how Lehman Brothers is going to help them, make millions of dollars and da, 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 um, I don't, I bet he wouldn't have been as effective. So I bet he was a pretty good listener too. Yeah. Yes, he was. That's a very astute. That's a good life. hack. So that may have been more important than the stories he told, which is actually listening well, at least, at least in my, in my career, I've discovered that listening is really what's gotten me success in life. When I had, when I owned an ad agency, I was maybe one of the few ad guys who would come in and really listen. There were a lot of guys who were really great hucksters and promoters, you know, and they were, they were singing their song about how great their agency was and how blah, 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 blah. And I just would stop and I would just listen. So well, tell me more about, you know, this and tell me more about that. And I was genuinely curious about their business and how things worked and how things didn't work well and et cetera. And I was usually better positioned when I came in to propose something to them that uh, they would go, oh, this guy understands my business. I think I'll give him the business, you know? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And, uh, I have two, you know, Rick, I have two boys that are 12 and 14 so that, you know, they haven't quite gotten into the dating thing, but I told them, you know, <laughs> when it comes to being, meeting a, meeting a, a girl or anyone for that matter, but notably if you, when you start dating, just ask questions and be genuinely curious and listen to the answer. And invariably, what will happen is, I believe, is that at the end of the day, the young lady will go home to her friend or her mother and say, wow, this person was so interesting. 
Yeah, right. What a neat <laughs> they were so interesting. You don't say if you ask a question, you don't talk for 40 minutes and then you ask another one and yeah. you ask five questions and you are so interesting, right? Well, yeah. you know, I have I, I, thanks to, thanks to you, Rick. I have a great question to ask, you know, when's the last time you danced? That's a uh, great opening line. Just the other day actually. I've been putting music on and and, and I'm not doing enough of it, but um I, I, I'll, in the morning, I'll put music on and just, my wife is usually not up yet. I'm up pretty early. And uh, often it's, a, the, you know, Bob Marley and the Whalers or somebody like that. And and I just, just free dance. And one is it just my body feels so much better when I'm done. You want to get finished. I just, you know, it's like all these kinks and everything as we get a little older, you know, and tightnesses and, and uh, aches and pains and all those things just sort of kind of begin to, move away so um and i but i need to do it more mm. you know it's just uh you know. rick may i ask you to repeat the four things the questions the shaman asks because in my estimation this is your checklist for is my life successful when did you stop singing you know whether i don't care whether it's in the bathtub or the shower or you know in your car on the way to work uh, when did you stop dancing and uh, when did you stop taking time to be quiet? And so you could think of that as being in nature, being still, noticing, meditating, praying, whatever, whatever, whatever that looks like for you. And when did you stop taking time to be enchanted by telling and listening to stories? Hmm. And, uh, and the word enchanted, I think, is an important word. To be enchanted by is to open yourself up to the mystery of story. Because yeah. stories, stories transport us. They have the capacity to take us to whole worlds we've never, ever visited before. They can take us into the life of somebody else. They can take us to the future. Uh, they can take us back in history to the past. And we can relive exactly what somebody who lived 500 or 1,000 or 5,000 years ago, we can imagine what it's like to be them. And so to be enchanted um, is to truly um, open ourselves up to what's, what's you know, awful, you know, awe-filling mm. uh, in life, you know, that is, you know, awe-filling, that, that fills it with awe, with awe about life. That's enchanting. And, and, and you do not get enchanted unless you actively listen. So that's, that's, right. that's the piece yeah. of it that's yeah, so you, important. And, and and in the Native American traditions, listening was always the first path of story. They understood if there was no listening, there could be no story. Hmm. And so they would always have devices. I, there's a wonderful storyteller, Johnny Moses, from the northwest of the of, of you know the southwest part of Canada, northeast part of the United States. He's he's got affiliations with a number of tribes, and when he's telling a story, he'll often will pause, and the audience has to say. Hamakawich, which means we are listening. And until the audience says Hamakawich, he won't continue telling the story. So this becomes this contract between the teller and the listener. Um, so when we when we teach people, we don't often teach young people to become good listeners. Uh, but that uh, they, they understood that very young, you had to be teaching people to become attentive to the stories. Otherwise, they couldn't learn. Yeah, And it uh, seems, too, that the... If you are, in fact, a good listener, if you don't even offer your story, but in fact, you really in, incite another 
to tell their story, eventually that person's going to be like, hey, man, who are you? What's your story? I am so interested and eager to know who you are. Uh, It's counterintuitive in our culture of me, me, me. But it, it makes perfect sense. I mean, I'm learning from you right now as a, as a, as a, as a willing and attentive listener that, that, that that's how it really works. It's, it's back. We have it backwards. You know, we, we have it backwards. Start with the listening piece and then the telling piece is implicit. You know, yeah. Yeah. brilliant. Well, you've got a lot going on right now. And um, why don't you share with our listeners um, what, if anything, they need to know where they need to go, how to find you. I think the best place that people can go is go to storyintelligence.com, all one word, storyintelligence.com. And uh, that's the title of our new book. And uh, they can learn about the book, but it's also, there's a lot there that's really can enrich them. There's blogs, uh, a number of interviews, video interviews with people like Paul Costello, whom I spoke of earlier in the, in this I have a wonderful interview with Paul Costello, but some other people who have great insight into the power of story and the way it operates in our world. Uh, so that's a great place to go. I have another website, storywork.com, which is the uh, name of our organization, Storywork International. And then they can go to thecentralfire.net to learn more about that. And if they'd like to join in one of the upcoming storytelling events, they can sign up. It's free. Love it. Wow. Thanks for sharing Love your it. story. This is awesome. Thanks really for having me. It. It's been a pleasure to hang out with you guys. Well, Rick Stone, one of the world's foremost experts on story, a lovely gentleman with an incredible story of his own. Thank you for being a part of Swamp Out. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to Swan Dive. If you like what you heard, please rate, review, and share this episode. Also, we are building a new season of Swan Dive. So if you or you know someone who has experienced a Swan Dive in their life, please hit us up and contact us through our website, www.swandive.us.